Happy New Year, everyone! Woohoo! It's 2022. It feels a lot like 2021 at the moment, but with lots more coronavirus around. But we've now got some signs that we may be past our peak. Perhaps it's too early to tell, but I like to think that all those extra vaccinations we've all been doing over the last few weeks have started to finally pay off. Sure, it could be it could be the masks. Sure, it could be the kind of social distancing that people are choosing to do. Sure, it could be because so many people have had coronavirus and there's almost no one left to get it. But it's the start of the year. I'm trying to be positive. Please don't burst my bubble. I hope that you had a good Christmas and New Year's. I hope you managed to get a bit of a break. I hope that you didn't get COVID like my wife did. And lots of you will have been in this position over the last two years, having to self-isolate, not being able to go out. Your sole source of entertainment is your partner or your children or Zoom. And inevitably, things start to unravel a little bit. Tempers start to fray. The smallest things start to irritate. Have you ever noticed the way that the person you live with puts the toilet roll on the toilet roll holder? So I put it so that the new paper that's coming down is facing away from the wall so that it's easier to get. It's the most logical way to do it. My wife always puts it the other way around so that the paper is coming down against the wall. I don't know why she does this. I suppose I should have asked. I think maybe she feels it's more aesthetically pleasing. And at day eight of isolation, I think that's the worst time because day nine, day 10, you know, it's almost over. You're going to get out soon. But day eight, that's when it's just really starting to drag. And that's when these little things start to take their toll. And that's when we started fighting over the way that the, the toilet roll paper is hanging. And we didn't know what to do. And so I contacted my friend, my friend, she's a, a therapist. And I said, please give us some advice. What, what would you suggest? And she said, what you need to do is that you need to try the other person's way and have that toilet paper around the opposite way for a whole week. I said, I see what you mean. Role reversal. I'm going to leave that one to hang for a moment. And although I don't believe in New Year's resolutions, I do believe in starting the way you mean to continue. And 2022 is going to be the year of the dad jokes. My wife flat out ignores them. My children just don't get them. I've got no other outlet other than to you, dear listener. But one thing I'm certain of is we can all do with a little bit more humour in our life, even if the jokes are bad. It's Friday the 14th of January 2022. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. Neil Tucker here to take you through some of the latest news and research relevant to us in primary care and a little bit beyond if I find it interesting. For example, medical story of the week. Bad news for pigs, good news for people that need transplants and just can't get them. A man in the US has been the first to receive a pig's heart as a transplant for his own heart. This bridges the massive chasm between the number of people that are waiting and might benefit from a transplant against the number of uh, donors and organs that are actually available. The pig has been heavily genetically modified to 
prevent or to try and reduce the chance of rejection once the transplant is in place. It's only been a few days. Things are looking promising so far. Of course, we're going to need to wait a little while to see what the overall outcomes are. But I've got my fingers crossed for the guy. It sounds like it was a really long operation, really clever, these transplant surgeons, but they must have been getting really tired, really, really hungry, especially given the fact that every time they used the diathermy, the smell of bacon filled the theatre. But what about the research? Well, we are going to have a look at some information about anticoagulation after provoked VTE. We're going to have a look at time that thrombectomy after stroke can be effective which I think has a bearing on the window during which we can refer people in for emergency stroke management and have a look at the best pharmacological therapies for obesity management. First a new paper in the BMJ that may get the early 2022 award for stating the obvious so the title is Indirect Effects of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Childhood Infection in England, Population-Based Observational Study. Now, hands up, as you know, I am not a researcher. Many of you listening to this will not be either. Some of you may well be parents and you may feel that you can hazard a guess as to the findings of this piece of research. Do you think the infection rates went down after months of homeschooling? The children freaking out because they can't go and play with their mates. Spending every second with them of every day, day after day after day. The only saving grace was that no one got ill. It feels like one of those things that you should just be able to write down rather than needing to actually do a research paper on it. But then I guess more and more medics, the media, even the general population... They want to know what is the research on this area. They need to know some answers. Show me the evidence. So maybe in our culture these days, we have to have researchers writing down the obvious or it's like it never happened. Some of you will um, have some empathy for for this, but it's a bit like when you go out for a run or a, a bike ride and then you find that Strava didn't work. That bitter disappointment afterwards, knowing that all that effort just didn't count. The paper ends with a warning. Continued monitoring of these infections is required as social restrictions evolve. I can certainly help with that. I can just keep counting the number of boxes of tissues and the number of bottles of cowpole that I have to order, both of which have gone up considerably in the last six months. Hashtag real world research. Talking about the real world, now let's have a look at a paper which may actually lead to some real world changes. So this was published in JAMA just this week. And this is all about how long people need to stay anticoagulated after they've had a provoked venous thromboembolism. So a DVT or a PE. Of course, some people will never find the cause and they may have uh, multiple episodes and they're going to go on anticoagulation for life. Some people may have um, inherent drivers something like a a type of thrombophilia, which predisposes them to getting clots, and they may need to go on anticoagulation in the long term as well. But if you've had a provoked event, then normally you go on it for a fairly short amount of time, and people usually come out of anticoagulation clinics taking it for around three months. But this paper asked the question, in younger people under the age of 21, if they've had a provoked DVT or PE, could they indeed have an even shorter duration of treatment? Could they do six weeks rather than three months? 
So this was a non-inferiority trial. They randomized people to one of these two groups to either have anticoagulation for six weeks or three months. And then they followed them up for a whole year to see what were the rates of venous thromboembolism over that time and also what were the um, clinically relevant bleeding rates as well. Essentially, the results showed there was absolutely no difference between the two groups. So 0.66% in the six-week treatment group and 0.7% in the three-month group had a recurrent VTE episode and the bleeding rates were almost identical in terms of percentages and also obviously no difference between each of the groups. There was 6% less other adverse events associated with shorter treatment. So overall, it seems that six weeks rather than three months could be safe and successful in this younger group. Next, let's have a look at a paper in The Lancet. This was discussing thrombectomy for anterior circulation stroke beyond six hours post-event. And while stories like the pig's heart transplant get a lot of media time and it is an exciting development in medicine, we shouldn't underestimate the, the other changes that have happened over the last decade or two decades. And stroke is one of those big areas which lots of people have, have strokes and there's been really huge improvements in management. So firstly, in primary prevention or indeed even secondary prevention uh, after they've had an event based around what we do in general practice. But of course, there's been huge changes in what they do in hospitals as well. People used to just be admitted and they just we just used to go, oh, well, sorry, they've had a stroke. And then you kind of watch them and hope they get a bit better over uh, the course of days or weeks. But now we've got these immediate treatments. You can have thrombolysis and you can even have thrombectomy when you've got big clots and big vessels. And these make a huge difference to patients, particularly when, they ca when they're caught early. Huge differences in their prognosis and possible resolution of their deficit. The limitation of thrombolysis and thrombectomy is the, the time that we've got to get the patient to the hospital and get their treatment from when their event occurred and initially it was within a couple of hours and then we had this figure of about four and a half hours and then sometimes they might do it up to six hours but that's pretty much the limit after that it's generally felt that there's very little gain to be had the damage is likely to be permanent so it must be quite challenging to do research where you say well actually you know what we're going to do it a bit longer and inevitably, there's been various trials around the world. They've generally been fairly small. That tends to mean that they're quite underpowered. And so um, this Lancet paper was a systematic review and then individual patient data meta-analysis of data over a 10-year period between 2010 and 2021. OK, maybe that's 11 years. So they found six trials that met their inclusion criteria, a total of 505 patients, it still doesn't sound like huge numbers, but you can imagine the numbers that were in those individual trials. And so they were comparing outcomes between usual care, which would mean standard medical therapy because these people would have fallen outside the assumed window of effectiveness for thrombolysis or thrombectomy, or for thrombectomy after six hours. And they found you were about two and a half times more likely to have a positive outcome if you had a thrombectomy, even after six hours. It was associated with higher levels of independence and in activities of daily living than the best medical therapy alone. 46% had a really good response. That's a very impressive figure compared with 19% in the medical therapy group. 
and no significant difference in 90-day mortality or rates of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. So the message that I took from this paper is that even if you're being contacted after four and a half hours from when the person is reported having the stroke, um, even after six hours, maybe they've had it in the middle of the night and they contact you in the morning, there could still be benefit of getting them rapidly to hospital. They may still be able to get some kind of treatment, which could make a huge difference to their lives. The last paper is another one from The Lancet this week, and this was a systematic review and network meta-analysis of randomised controlled trials exploring pharmacotherapy for adults with overweight and obesity. So stroke is an example where the NHS has really shined over the last decade or so. I think probably the opposite is true for obesity management. Every area has had to have some kind of obesity service, but let's be honest, I can't believe that anywhere any of us would say, yeah, that's a really great service. I think sometimes there's a lot of therapeutic nihilism going on around obesity management, but there are lots of really effective options on the podcast and on the Hot Topics course, we've talked about research in bariatric surgery. We've talked about the effectiveness of low-calorie diets and the range of medications which could also be beneficial. But it seems very rare that any of our patients really get access to this. And perhaps we're guilty because we're perhaps not suggesting it to patients enough. But also, I feel like the services just haven't existed. They haven't been there for people to actually access these options They've pretty much just been given a Weight Watchers voucher and sent on their way. So this paper collated a wide range of trials, 143 trials, including 49,810 participants, looking at a wide range of drugs, including a whole group that I've never heard of before. The one that appeared most effective was a combination of topiramate, which I have heard of, and fenteramine, which I've never heard of, this led to eight times the chance of successfully reducing your weight by 5% or more and led to a mean body weight reduction of 8%. This drug does not have UK or indeed European uh, marketing authorization. I think it's quite popular in the States, but I think the issue with it is that you get lots and lots of side effects. I know that my patients struggle on topiramate alone, let alone throwing something else into the mix. And that's before you include the negative effects, both mentally and physically, that you get when you're actively losing weight. Presumably that means that the manufacturers of the drug felt that they were so unlikely to manage to get a positive outcome from NICE that they just gave up. The other option that came out quite well was semaglutide. So that's one of the GLP-1 receptor agonists. I know I've definitely talked about that in the context of both adults and children before on this podcast. And they found that that, that seemed to lead to a percentage body weight change of around 11.5%, which is pretty impressive. As we all know, the main side effect of this is nausea, which no doubt helps with achieving weight loss, assuming it doesn't drive you to discontinuation. I think the main message for me from this paper is simply that we need to remember there are a wide variety of options that may help people who have overweight or obesity if they are interested in losing weight. We need to be careful not to stigmatise this group and not everyone will want to lose weight and that's okay but many of them do and so it's really good if we have a wide variety of options that might suit those individuals and services that can be uh, services that can deliver them pharmacotherapy should be one of those options.
Okay, that is it for the research today. It's been a really, really busy, busy week, and it's going to be a really busy next week. We're just finalising the new Hot Topics book. We're busy writing. We've got loads of courses on at the moment. Speaking of obesity, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to have our new obesity course starting. We're also going to have our abnormal blood test course starting in the next few weeks. We've got all the usual courses coming up as well. So do look out for the Hot Topics course. I know there's one going on next weekend. I think I'll be presenting some of that. We've got our Urgent Care course, Diabetes course, Nurses course, Mental Health course, um, MSK course. It's all going on. Don't forget to check out NB Plus. That's where for £300 a year or thereabouts, you can get access to all of those courses live and on demand. It's an absolute bargain. And don't forget to check out some of the partnerships that MB Medical has as well. I was mindful just as I'm kind of promoting the podcast on Twitter and Facebook, I'm sort of signed up with a number of different GP forum groups and I'd never ever really want to post anything on Facebook in a forum. Um, so we went into a partnership a while back with GP Horizon, which is uh, a free, secure forum for GPs to discuss clinical and non-clinical topics it feels like a much better and safer place to be having that kind of discussion. And while I remember as well, I was on a national meeting with Greener Practice last night. 2022 is the year that we're going to do something really positive in general practice about the environment. So if you haven't checked it out yet, have a look at the Green GP course on the MB Medical website. It is free and do check out the Greener Practice website as well. It's got loads of information and think about joining the network of GPs that's um, ever expanding around the country that are involved. And as ever, remember to have some fun too, but um, you've got to choose your fun. Don't do what I did over the Christmas holidays and go to the ice rink. If there's one place I can't stand, it's an ice rink. Look after yourself. Bye bye.